This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. This is God's Word. Luke chapter 7, verse 1. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus... He sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he's the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, Not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Let's pray. Lord, we're comforted to know that you have made today And that means you have ordained all that's in it, including us sitting here, lingering over this passage. And so I pray for those in this room that are really deeply struggling to believe. Not just the content of what we know is the gospel, but to really believe. To really believe that you care and that you're able to do something about the day-to-day life that we experience, that you're sufficient, that you're powerful, that you have authority over all things. Lord, we've come, and many of us are doubting and struggling to believe that. And so we pray that you would help us, that you would build us as a church on your word, that as we look to this amazing story, and it is amazing, or that we would be encouraged in our stories, in our lives. So we pray that you would meet with us, Lord. That is our great hope, to meet with you. So we ask that you would help us and that you would come do far more than I could ask or imagine in this time, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul Miller has said in his book on prayer that cynicism is the dominant spirit of our age. If you're not familiar with cynicism, I like the way that he defines it. It's when spiritually our adultness takes over our childlikeness as it relates to faith. Our adultness, so we're, we've kind of grown out of kind of just trust, blind trust, as children do. 
And now we've kind of grown into something else. Miller argues that a lot of times it starts with a, an optimism that is shattered. And it kind of sets us up for a fall into weariness that's kind of just defeated weariness. And then cynicism. We go from seeing the bright side in everything to the dark side in everything. It begins with kind of this assurance that everyone has an angle. Everyone around me has an angle they're working to. Maybe you feel that way. Behind every silver, silver lining, there's a cloud. And it just leads to feeling betrayed generally by life. Questioning the active goodness of God on my behalf. And sometimes he argues that it starts with a naive optimism. That I think everything should be easy and generally go well for me in my life. I expect that. And then when that doesn't happen, I go down into this pit called cynicism. He argues that's the American journey. In naive optimism, we don't need to pray because we expect everything to go, go right. Everything's under control. And in cynicism, we can't pray because everything's out of control and little is possible. So cynicism creates a numbness toward life. And without the good shepherd, we're alone in a meaningless story. Just random story that's happening in life. We feel overwhelmed and unable to move. It leaves us doubting, unable to dream. Our hearts shut down. And we're just going through the motions in life. So if you find yourself in a place like that, or someone who is, is struggling with doubt, struggling to believe, or even that you're in that place of being cynical. Maybe you're cynical about the goodness of God in your life. Bad things keep happening. They just keep happening. Or about the church. About God really answering your prayers, really hearing your needs. That anything's going to actually change in your life. This chapter in Luke's gospel is for you. Now this is for all of us, but especially for you. If you find yourself swamped by doubt and just discouraging circumstances, this is for you. Jesus has, has chosen his 12 disciples. If you remember where we are in the story, his, his apostles. He's preached this amazing, challenging sermon, the Sermon on the Plain. And now Luke gives us this picture, this portrait of Jesus. And there's really two parts to it. One part is who he is, who Jesus is. And the next part is what faith in Jesus looks like. Who he is and what it looks like to have faith in him. If you just look at the chapter, look at chapter 7 as a whole, it opens with this story that I just read about the centurion who has great faith in Jesus to heal his servant. That's verses 1 to 10. Great faith from the Roman centurion. And then it closes, the chapter closes on into chapter 8 with a story of a sinful woman who has great faith in Jesus. She, she wipes his feet with her tears and with oil. That's in kind of chapter 7, 36 down to chapter 8, verse 3. So you've got an opening and closing illustration of great faith, like bookends for faith. This is what faith looks like. And then in the middle, what do we have? We have a description of who Jesus is, his identity. So we have this, this, this amazing miracle that he performs, and then language like God has come to visit us. And then you have these questions from John the Baptist's disciples. Are you the one to come, or should we look for someone else? Are you the Messiah? And Jesus just says, 
Well, you know what the Messiah is supposed to do. Look around and see, am I doing those things? What do you see? What do you hear? Go tell John those things. So who Jesus is right at the very center. So, beloved, God in his providence has us staring at the person of Jesus and examples of what faith in Jesus looks like for the next four to five weeks. If you look at your sermon card, we're going to be in Luke 7, Lord willing, for the next few weeks. Is that an accident? Are you someone who's in need of that reminder personally? Do you know someone who's in need of that reminder personally? Who Jesus is, what faith looks like. Maybe someone who right now seems so far from God that that you've actually kind of given up, honestly, on praying for them. Because the tailspin that they're in is so deep and dark, you've literally given up. Maybe you've given up about your own circumstances and your own life. Did you notice the characters in chapter 7 that we just kind of mentioned? A Gentile, Roman soldier, a widow, that's going to be the next next chance that we see, a, a widow, and a sinful woman. So in context, you couldn't get, and culturally speaking, kind of more unlikely candidates for God's grace than, you could, than, than these three. God's grace crossing over a gender gap, crossing over a racial gap, crossing over the gap of someone's sinful reputation and history to change them. Jesus has come for all. There's no one too far away to be reached by the grace of God in Christ. He's come for you. And he wants us to trust him with everything. So the main point of the sermon is really simple. Look to Jesus in faith and he will not forsake you. Look to Jesus in faith and he will not forsake you. Now you may even add childlike faith. Paul Miller again says, Both the child and the cynic walk through the valley of the shadow of death. The cynic focuses on the darkness. The child focuses on the shepherd. So may by by God's grace we would focus on the shepherd as we look to his word together. Luke is going to show us a commendable example. This is what faith looks like in in our passage this morning from a Gentile centurion. So if you're taking notes, I want to mention three things about this man's faith. Three characteristics of his faith that we'll just highlight as we go through. Number one, it is an unlikely faith. Unlikely faith. We see that in the first five verses. Unlikely. Number two, it's a humble faith. Very humble faith. Verses six to eight. And then finally, it is an amazing faith. It amazes Jesus. It's an amazing faith. Verses 9 to 10. Unlikely, humble, amazing. So may we all look to Jesus in faith, believing that he will not ignore us, he will not forsake us. Let's look first about how unlikely this man's faith is. Luke begins by connecting where we've been in the Sermon on the Plain, especially that last illustration of what faith looks like. The man who hears the words of Jesus and does them. He's like a man who builds his house on the rock, if you remember. So we're about to see an example of what building your house on the rock looks like. What true faith looks like. Look again at verse 1 of chapter 7. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, referencing that, that sermon, he entered Capernaum. 
If you remember, Capernaum is like Jesus' headquarters, his home base, his adopted hometown. And it is the setting for this scene. Verse 2. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. Um, so if you're not familiar, you can just kind of get pick it up with context clues. But a Roman centurion is a, a soldier responsible for roughly 100 soldiers, more or less. You might think of him like a, like a captain, an army captain, kind of in our day. He ranks somewhere between a decurion, commander of 10 soldiers, and a, a chiliarch, if I'm not pronouncing that right, forgive me, commanding over 1,000 soldiers. The centurions are not always Roman. Um, they're from different nationalities traditionally, but we know this man's not Jewish. We don't know his nationality, but he's not Jewish. We know from verse 9, Jesus compares his faith with any that he's seen in Israel. I think the implication is he's not in Israel. He's not a Jew. He's a Gentile. Centurions were often brutal by reputation. Uh, Polybius says that these men were to be, quote, steady in action, reliable, not overly anxious to rush into a fight, but when hard-pressed, they must be ready to hold their ground and die at their posts. They're also typically wealthy soldiers. The low end of pay for soldiers was around 75 denarii. Centurions made between 3,700 and 7,500 denarii. And so this man was very wealthy, relatively speaking, so much so that he's able to fund public buildings. So he's got that kind of money. And he has probably a host of servants, but there's one in particular we're, we're seeing here, a servant or a slave that was sick and at the point of death. Luke doesn't tell us exactly what's wrong with the servant. We know from Matthew 8, Matthew's account, that uh, he's paralyzed and he's suffering greatly. But he seems to be very important to the centurion. It says that he's a valuable servant. Now, it could just be on face value. We just take it that way. He's valuable like you would value another, like a piece of property. Um, but really that word can also have the connotation of dear, highly esteemed, which just communicates this, this man has a real relationship with him. He loves him. He cares for him. And when someone we love and care for is dying or hurting, it gives kind of a fresh urgency, a fresh clarity about what we believe and what we need to do to help them. Even for someone who isn't officially religious, like the centurion. Rome was swimming in cynicism as it relates to religion. Uh, listen to this one. One historian says it this way. Romans would sometimes support local religion when it was to their advantage. The various modes of religion in the Roman world were all considered by the people, people as, as, as all true. But the philosophers considered them all false and the magistrates considered them equally useful. They could use religion to manipulate and to, to receive, to get and gain more power. But this centurion is no cynic. There's something different about him. He's staring at, at, at death right in the face, and he calls out for Jesus. Look at verse 3. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. How unlikely is this scenario? How crazy is this scene? Let me, just, let me just kind of count the ways. This man is, number one, a Gentile. 
going to a, a Jewish leader for help. Secondly, he's a Roman soldier. Third, he has only heard about Jesus. He's heard about him. And then he believes that what he's heard about him is true. We shouldn't take belief like this for granted. He's heard and he believes it's true. Fourth, he sends a delegation of Jewish elders to Jesus. Not Roman, not soldiers, Jewish elders to Jesus for help. And they go. The list just continues as we read about what these leaders say to Jesus. Look at verse 4. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who has built us our synagogue. So the list goes on. Apparently, this man has an affection for the Jewish people. He, He loves our nation, the ones that he set over to rule. This would be very odd, very strange. He loved them so much that he's funded the building of a synagogue for them. It seems like, like he's done this himself. So he's likely a God-fearer, someone who fears and perhaps worships the God of Israel, but is not a Jew, is not a, a proselyte. Luke describes another centurion this way in, in Acts chapter 10. There's a lot of connections, I think, between Cornelius there in Acts 10 and this unnamed centurion of Luke 7. But this man seems to be caring. He loves his servant. He's generous. He builds a synagogue. And he's affectionate for God's people. He loves the nation. So he is, by definition, a good guy. He's a good guy. And that is the conclusion the Jews come to, the, the leaders come to. Did you notice that? Because of all this, there's a bit of a good guy theology that's exposed He's worthy, Jesus, to have you help him. Because he's done these things, he's worthy for your help. And look, I understand how they got there. It's pretty easy, isn't it? But their reasoning is completely external. Because of what this guy has done, he's worthy. They're thinking in terms of merit, literally good works. He's done these things. If someone lives a good life, they're worthy to receive a blessing from God. I do think this is the dominant theology in our context today, in our country. And it is sneaky theology. If we do something, do good things, do, do right by God, we ought to expect blessing. Often it's not overt like that. It's revealed when something happens to us that we didn't expect. A loss, some sort of trial, some sort of suffering. And we say, Lord, I've been serving you. I'm trusting you. I'm not in any overt sin. I'm giving to the church. I'm doing all these things that you're asking me to do. And yet, why would this happen to me? Underneath that is an expectation that because I'm doing X, God must bless with Y. Expectation of blessing in exchange for my deeds. Or perhaps you're, you're here and you're actually kind of tracking with the Jewish elders and thinking, yes, yeah, someone like this who, who does these things and supports the church and gives money to charity or, or does other good works is worthy of salvation. The theology there is the same that is exposed. If we do good enough in this life, we're entitled to heaven. My friends, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible doesn't teach that what's good in our eyes, our list of achievements and good works, 
is good in God's eyes. In fact, it teaches the opposite, that, that the things that we would hold out as good, that we would put forward as our resume for being accepted by God in heaven, are polluted. They're stained before a holy God. I read this week before the 17th century when most people looked at, a clear, at clear water. It was clear in a river or even in a lake. They assumed it was clean, drinkable. But then um, in, 19, in 1674, a Dutch scientist examined a clear glass of water for the first time under a microscope. And this is what he wrote in his journal. I now saw very plainly little eels or worms lying all huddled up together and wriggling, just as if you saw them with the naked eye, a whole, a whole tube full of very little eels squirming among one another. The whole water seemed to be alive with them. So be careful what water you drink. Under the microscope of God's holy standard of righteousness, our hearts are seen like this, to be crawling with worms, dead, rotting, evil, unclean. And no amount of philanthropy, church attendance, serving the poor, doing good deeds to others, giving money will clean up that darkness. It's a sickness unto death, just like the servant here. We will all face the reality of the wages of sin, death. Bruce Milne said it this way, Death confronts us as nothing else does, with our insignificance and weakness, and exposes the folly of our pretensions to greatness. Even when we attempt to face death with courage, we never succeed in finally overcoming it. It dominates us until at last we too go to receive the wages of sin. So friends, there's only one cure for death. There's only one way to be made truly clean from sin. To meet God's perfect holy standard. One way to be carried safely through the waters of God's judgment that we deserve. And it's found in the saving work of Jesus Christ. He alone is worthy. And surprisingly, this Gentile centurion at some level is further along in understanding who Jesus is than these Jewish elders. And so you have a picture of an outsider, a spiritual, cultural outsider, having an inside take on who Jesus is. A big theme in Luke's gospel. And a reminder to us that no one in your life is too far outside, too far gone for Jesus to save them. No one is too lost, too sinful, too pagan, too antagonistic to the gospel. It may be an unlikely faith that we see, but it is a true faith. And we're going to see that really clearly as we continue to go on. So that's the first thing we see is an unlikely faith. Number two, let's think about the faith as a humble faith. His faith is marked by humility. When I first read this story, I was really struck by the first five words here in verse 6. They just jumped out to me. And Jesus went with them. The, the, the deck seems very stacked against doing this, in my view. I can't imagine how many requests for healing and help that Jesus would have been receiving. But this one seems like one that he would have leaned over to Peter and said, let's take a message and we'll go back later. 
This is one we're going to think about more later and just kind of not come back. He doesn't know this man. He doesn't know the servant. He's a Gentile. And then the motivation for the Jewish elders is all off. I mean, you're talking to Jesus. Nobody gets more at the heart of things than Jesus. Give to the guy, help the guy because he gives a lot of money. And yet we read, and Jesus went with them. So I'm just struck by the caring heart of Jesus. And I mean, I'm struck in my own cynical heart by the caring heart of Jesus. Because we ask these questions, do my needs make it up really where he hears them? That he cares? Does my situation occupy his time and energy? And I think honestly, if we were, we we're going to be honest, we would say, no, I don't know that it does. There's something in me that's flawed where he doesn't hear, he doesn't care. I've, I've, I've polluted myself. But, but here is an example of him going and caring when all the, the, the things that you would stack up are wrong. And yet he goes. I feel like I've been saying 1 Peter 5, 7 a lot, probably some to you, but a lot to myself. Kind of a sermon I've been preaching to myself a lot. This, the context there is humility, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he might exalt you. But then he says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That's a sermon to preach to yourself. Cast your anxieties. Cynicism says he doesn't care and then there's no casting. He doesn't care, therefore I won't pray. Faith says he does care. We have the promise of God that says he does care. So I will cast. I will pray. And we see pictures like this when Jesus hears a request and then goes. Note just the caring heart of Jesus. But he doesn't get far. Verse 6, and Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself. For I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word and let my servant be healed. And so the man sends another delegation. Lots of thought about what's going on here with the two different delegations. Why didn't he just say this at the very beginning? But I think this is an expression of the centurion's humble faith. Those two words, both very important. Humble faith. Humble because he's directly countering the elder's assessment of his worthiness to have Jesus help him. He's directly countering that. Maybe he got wind of what they said. A servant ran back to him and said, okay, the guy said, because you've done these things, Jesus should come and he's coming. He's like, no, 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 no. You go tell him this. I got to go correct that. Maybe he's like Cornelius, and he doesn't want to put Jesus in the awkward spot of a Jew coming into the home under the roof of a Gentile and becoming ceremonially unclean. But, but I do think the humility goes deeper. I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, even for me to go to you, to be in your presence. I'm not worthy to stand before you, Jesus. Where have we seen that kind of reaction before? It's what Peter did after the miracle of the fish. You remember in Luke 5, 8? Simon Peter saw it. He fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. 
So this man has an understanding of the status of his own heart. I don't know if you, when you came to, the, to know the Lord and the timeline of things, but I, for me it was later in life, and I remember my thinking a lot as a non-Christian. And I literally can, can remember thinking um, so optimistically about my own life, my own track record, and, and how pessimistic I viewed others. How bad others seemed by comparison to me. It, was, it sticks out to me. Uh, one, one author put it this way when he said, The great problem for most non-Christians, and this was my case, is that they are strangers to themselves. Strangers to themselves. We, sin of the, we see the sins of others with a microscope, and we see the sins of our own lives with a telescope. They seem far off and not that specific. But in order to know and understand and love Jesus, we must know ourselves. We can't commend ourselves to him. We must actually repent of ourselves and turn to him in faith. And then walk with him in repentance and faith regularly, consistently. C.S. Lewis wrote to a friend about the great Scottish preacher Alexander White. And he said this, For him, for White, the one essential symptom of the regenerate life is a permanently horrified perception of one's natural corruption. The true, Christian, the true Christian's nostril is to be continually attentive to the inner cesspool. That doesn't sound very cheery. But a Christian that ignores sin, or a Christianity that ignores sin, is a sick Christianity. But a Christianity that sees nothing but sin is a religion of slavery. It's forgotten grace. And so we can rejoice that in Christ, he has made us new. That's what we're most excited about here at University Park Baptist Church. That we can happily and clearly say, with the centurion, we are not worthy of salvation. We have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are hopeless apart from Jesus, but we are not without Jesus. He has purchased us with his righteousness with a, a life that was sinless, loving, and righteous, and that he died on the cross to pay for our unrighteousness, for our sins, that our, our lives are full of sin. He bought us, he purchased us, and then he rose from the grave victorious over sin and death and calls us to trust him, to have faith in him. And be fully, forever, finally saved from hell. Saved to God. To a relationship with God where we're growing and being made more and more like, like Jesus Christ himself. This is the gospel. There's a tension there. Tim Keller, I think, puts it well. He says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. That's the, the life that we live. Or we might say with Ray Ortland, he's describing himself, I'm a complete idiot. My future is incredibly bright and anyone can get in on this. Do you want to get on this? Don't you want to get in on the good news that would, that would just not just acknowledge that you're unworthy, but to know someone that has purchased you and made you whole? Brought you to the living God. Oh, friend, trust Jesus. This man's faith acknowledges his sin. He is humble. Humble faith. 
but it's still faith. That's the second word. Look at the way he trusts Jesus. Verse 7, just say the word, Jesus, and my servant will be healed. You don't have to physically be there. You just speak the healing from right here. You have power over disease and death. It's just a matter of giving the order. Then he illustrates from his own experience, doesn't he? Verse 8. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one go and he goes and to another come and he comes. And to my servant do this and he does it. The centurion is used to giving orders and having them obeyed. He says a word, things happen. He doesn't have to be there. When those things happen, he just says it and people go do stuff. We've already seen that. He's already, he's told the Jewish elders to do something and they're doing it. So he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. I'm a lonely centurion. If I can do that, I oversee a hundred people. How much more Jesus Christ who carries with him all authority in heaven and on earth. We don't know all that this man knows and believes about Jesus right here. But he does hint at something deeper, I think, with the way just he speaks about authority. Do you notice that in verse 8 he said, I too am a man under authority? I was expecting him to say, in authority, with authority, but he says, I'm under authority. So the soldiers that he told orders to carried them out, not because they're from him, but because of who he represented. His authority was a derived authority from his commanding officers and their superiors, all the way up to Caesar himself. So every order from this centurion had the backing of the entire Roman Empire behind it. He was in authority because he was under authority. What a great lesson and encouragement for us to remember who have some level of authority in our jobs, in the church, in the home, that we are first under authority. And we exercise authority as those under authority who will have to give an account. I love Hebrews 13, 17 for us. Elders, tells the congregation, submit to your elders. And then the elders are those who have to give an account to Jesus Christ. We are under authority. We are under shepherds who have to give an account to the shepherd. Somehow the centurion saw the same kind of authority in Jesus. He probably doesn't know that he's the son of God. He probably couldn't explain and articulate the Trinity, but he, he does know that Jesus has power over death and disease, and that's God's power. Only God can do that stuff, and so he has an almighty authority. All he has to do is speak the words, and heaven will see it done. Jesus says as much, doesn't he, in the Great Commission? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go make disciples. So this man is confessing, and just get your mind around that. No spatial hurdles, hindrances to Jesus Christ. No limitations on his power. He doesn't have to be present to heal. Friends, this is a great faith. Have you ever just been in an urgent situation where you needed to get someone to a doctor? Not just any doctor, but a good doctor? How fast can you do it? I've been there. How fast can we get to the ER, the right ER, the right place, and we'd be seen at the right time? Maybe you're a fan of superhero movies. The bad guys don't die unless the superhero is present and there to kill them. But here this man stops Jesus from coming. He's maybe steps away from his home. 
stops him from physically coming and says, she don't even need to be here. Just say the word. So don't confuse humble faith with weak faith. His humility exalts Jesus Christ because he's asking Jesus to do what only Jesus can do. And I think that's a great lesson for us. It's instructive for us that we think about our own prayers, that we not pray to Jesus like he's one of us and ask him to do stuff that we can also do, but that we ask him to do what only he can do. That honors him. It exalts him. We honor him to do that when we pray God-sized prayers. In urgent desperation, call out to Jesus. He's worthy. He cares. And listen, he wants you and me to have this kind of faith. And I think we know that because of the way he responds. He turns to the disciples. He turns to the crowd and says, look at this. This is amazing. You should believe like this too. That's number three, amazing faith. Look at verse 9. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. There are only two times in the Gospels where Jesus marvels and is amazed. The first one is in Mark 6, where it's in his hometown of of Nazareth, and he's at the synagogue, and they don't believe, and he marvels at their unbelief. And here we see him marveling and being amazed at a Gentile who built a synagogue, who believes, who has an amazing faith. He draws attention to this man's faith by comparing it to what he's seen in Israel. Now, the pattern in Luke's gospel, and it continues on in the book of Acts, is that we see a continual kind of shutting down of the Jews as it relates to Jesus and a belief among the Gentiles, the outsiders, the outcasts. This is a preview of Jesus' ministry. So that's in the call to worship of the gospel going to the nations, to the Gentiles. That's where this whole thing is going. It's going to the outsider. It's going to those that are far from God. And, and you're here this morning. If you're not ethnically Jewish, you're a representation of that. The dark, destitute people, the most dark, destitute places on the planet. And I wonder if you have a good handle on that. That you don't think about like America as the home base for Christianity, but, but God's heart is for the nations in which we are some of those nations. But the gospel still hasn't gone to all the nations. Have you, have you got a burden for that? Have you, have you thought through that? Have you prayed about that? that? That perspective class that we mentioned is a great place. If you're looking to hone in, you're thinking about that and be challenged about what Scripture says and what the church has done historically about missions to unreached peoples. Pick up a copy of uh, John Piper's Let the Nations Be Glad if you want a kind of a, a robust challenge about God's heart for the nations. Set up a lunch with some of the folks here at UPBC that have done ministry among unreached peoples or that are even doing that now in our own midst. Think about some that are ministering and loving those who are on the outside of, of our kind of normal routine of life. The poor and the, the, the struggling in our own neighborhood. Set it up with them and just listen to their heart and think about the way it connects with God's own heart. But then especially here for Luke who we've said earlier is writing to Gentile believers, this is a crucial picture, isn't it? Because we have a man who is a Gentile who is commended by Jesus for his faith. That's significant. If I'm in a Gentile church who was started by a group of Jewish leaders, 
We heard the message from the Jewish leaders, but now we're, we're mainly in a Gentile area, a Gentile church, and we're worshiping this same Jesus. That's significant. This gospel overcomes racial divisions. We're no different than anyone else. We're brought to Jesus too. And also, we can relate with this guy because we've never seen Jesus either. We've never seen him with our own eyes. We've never given him a hug. We've never watched him preach. We've never seen him heal anyone. We've heard his message from faithful messengers. We've heard his message from the word of God. But we weren't there. We didn't see the empty tomb. We didn't talk with him on the seaside after the resurrection. Beloved, this is for us. For the cynic. We've never seen him. Never heard him preach. And he's holding out this man saying, Have faith like this. Trust me like this. Watch this wealthy, respected, powerful, well-connected man humble himself before a Jewish Galilean peasant that he's never met. And he says, I'm not even worthy to be in his presence. And he's going to trust him to do what only God could do in the one that's precious to him, in the life of his loved one. Remember what Jesus said to Thomas, who was so eager to see Jesus and after the resurrection and touch those wounds? Here I am, Thomas. See me, touch me. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Friend, that is you. I think we, we traffic in this stuff all the time. We think about this stuff all the time. But faith like this is a gift from God. And it is what Jesus says, come to me, call out to me. I'm here. Even though I may not be physically present, I show up. The Holy Spirit is at work in you, in your life. My spirit is in you. I'm still changing lives. I'm still saving. I'm still healing. I'm still transforming. I have that kind of authority. I love the way that I think the focus here is not on the healing in Luke. It's on the man who gets healed. He's a Gentile. He's, he's crazy, like, unlikely. But the healing is just kind of thrown in there. Oh, yeah, by the way, verse 10. And when those who had been sent returned to the house... They found the servant well. That's not a small thing. That's not a small detail. J.C. Ryle summarizes it this way. He says, a greater miracle of healing than this is nowhere recorded in the Gospels. Without even seeing the sufferer, without touch of hand or look of the eye, our Lord restores health to a dying man by a single word. He speaks and the sick man is cured. He commands and the disease departs. Luke doesn't even record him speaking. Matthew does. The same word that created the universe out of nothing brings sinners from death to life, darkness to light. But the man's not healed because of the worthiness of the one who asked. That's something for us to remember as we pray. Not because he'd done great things. Something to remember as we pray. We go to the Lord Jesus. Because of who it is that he was trusting in. The authority that he had. All authority in heaven and on earth. His faith had found, as the song says, a resting place in Jesus. So fight cynicism with this kind of faith. One author says this about the younger generation of today. So if that's you, I think we all define ourselves as younger, but some of us aren't. 
But our defining characteristic is cynicism. But it's a double-edged sword. It protects you from crushing, crushing disappointment, but it paralyzes you from actually doing anything. So I'm going I'm to put a bubble wrap around my life and not really risk believing and trusting so I won't be let down because I've been let down before. But then on the other hand, I'm never going to believe and I'm never going to actually do anything. By contrast, we see here a picture of faith like this. It's not confidence that we have done the best we could do. That's not what builds our faith. That God's going to assess our merits generously. Faith is actually abandoning the trust in our works and merit and any thought of deserving salvation and relying totally, without reserve, on the person of Christ and the authority of his word. So, beloved, look to Jesus with faith, and he will not forsake you. Look to the one who Paul says is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things go and hold together. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Beloved, this is for us. This is faith. Hebrews says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. May the Lord bring faith to us by his grace. Faith like this. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And every time we come to it, we are freshly amazed at how relevant it is. Thank you that it speaks to us who struggle now, just as it did thousands of years ago. So, Lord, we pray that you would do the work now that only you can do in building faith among your people and taking the promises, the the truth of the Bible that we've seen, the word that we've seen and heard, and taking it deep into our hearts. Help us to be like this centurion. Help us to be not looking to ourselves to commend ourselves, but also not overly introspective to the point that we feel like you can never hear us and that you don't care. Help us just to be realists and to believe what the Bible says, that you are our only hope and you are a great, final, lasting, changing, blessed hope. So we pray that by your grace you would do your work among your people for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.